we go. Mic check. Amen. All right. Well, here we're going to go with the mic. Y'all pray for me. And I'll pray for you. Israel gets out of the Red Sea, this decisive act that sets them free. And immediately on the other side of the Red Sea, they sing. And we talked about this as we talked uh, a few uh, probably months ago, that saved people sing. That's what we do. We celebrate when God has set us free. We sing praises for his work. Then they began their journey onto Canaan, to the promised land. And in the midst of that, Yahweh takes them through what we've called Wilderness University, where there's plenty of lessons they need to learn. So they've been redeemed. They've been set free. They're on the way to the promised land. But in between is this season of wilderness, this season of testing, these seasons of lessons that God means to teach his people. We've learned and we've watched these lessons as God has given grace for victories and valleys as, and valleys, as Israel went from singing to then thirsting as they were in Marah where there was only water that was available was too bitter for them to drink. And yet God in his grace and kindness, though they were grumbling and complaining, turned the bitter water sweet to provide for them, take care of them. And then he led them to rest in Elam where they were able to camp by 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Then they journeyed on to sin where they were hungry. After more grumbling and complaining and rebellion, this time due to their unbelief that God would take care of their hunger, God in his overwhelming grace provided manna and quail. And Israel would then survive day by day in this manna, with this manna and this quail for the next 40 years. Then on the next leg of her journey, Israel find herself without, found herself without water in Rephidim. So we looked at last week. And again, she grumbled and complained, this time threatening to stone Moses. So God had used powerful, uh, Moses powerfully to set them free. He had provided for them again and again. And yet here they are, thirsty and saying, Moses, have you brought us out here to die? Let's just kill him. But Moses, because of God's grace and kindness, struck a rock. There poured living water to nourish and care for them. Moses renamed that place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, or as I joked, Testville and Quarrelsboro. <laughs> These wilderness lessons are about teaching Israel to trust the God who redeemed them out of slavery to take care of them until he gets them to the promised land. That's what these lessons are about. God is saying, I have redeemed you. I've set you free. I've done the ultimate thing. I'm taking you to the promised land. In between, you got to trust me to take care of your basic needs. Trust me to provide for you and to protect you and even to sanctify and bring out the remaining sin in you to deal with it. Now, there are clear parallels for the Christian life. Has not God decisively rescued us in Calvary on the cross of Christ? Rescuing us from the penalty of our sins, the slavery of our sins, and setting us free to live a new life. Has he not promised that he would take us into glory? The new heavens, the new earth, the true promised land. But are we not right now in this wilderness, sojourning in between? Redeemed, set free, going to glory, but in the middle of learning the same kinds of lessons Israel needed to learn in their journey through the wilderness. Between rescue and the promised land. There is wilderness. We are indeed sojourners. And we need to learn the same lessons. God will take care of us in the wilderness. He has grace for our grumbling and complaining. He's trustworthy to protect us from our sin and provide all that we need for life and godliness. And this morning, we'll also see that he can be trusted to protect us. Not just from these internal battles that lead to grumbling and complaining, but actual external battles with real enemies. That he not only provides and meets our needs and protects us from our own sin and grows us, he will protect us from, indeed, our real external enemies. Beloved, there is grace for your battles today. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. 
But I'm sure at least you're coming out of a battle, in the middle of one, or maybe going into one. And what you need to know is there's grace for your battle. There is victory available to you in Christ. The same God who set you free and saved you and is taking you to glory have grace, has grace for your battle even today. So let's pray and ask for his help. We'll jump into the lessons today. Father God, we come to you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thanking you for the victory at Calvary. Thanking you that Christ died in our place for our sins, that he got up on the third day. Thanking you that he ascended to your right hand where he intercedes for us even now, that, he, that you and the Son sent forth the Spirit to be with us, to dwell in us, to intercede for us. And so we pray, even would you meet with us now? Help us, give us grace for our battles, even this morning, even right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to set the context for you, for Israel, and in particular answer a few questions that may be on your mind before then we jump into four particular lessons of, of God's grace to us in the midst of our battles. So first for context, look again at Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Quick question, who is Amalek? Amalek is the grandson of Esau, Jacob's brother. So this is in the family lineage. This is in the family line. This is in the fathers. So this is uh, one who's now attacking and fighting with the people of God. The Amalekites, named after Amalek, inhabited the northern Sinai Peninsula. And they were particularly wicked. How do we know that? Well, we know even from Deuteronomy chapter 25 that they snuck up on Israel and attacked their most vulnerable. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Amalek did not fear God, and we see that he did not fear God because he attacked God's people, and not just God's people, but the most vulnerable and weak among them. So he sneaks up behind them at the back where the nursing mothers are, where those who are injured and wounded and the elderly and the most vulnerable, the most weak, and he sneaks up and he attacks those people, the most vulnerable. There's a wickedness when you see people attack the most vulnerable of people. And this is the guilt of Amalek. In fact, and this is why Moses says they did not fear God. It's why we read in Psalm 83 that when the psalmist is talking about and praying a particular prayer and talks about specific enemies of God in 83 verse 7, he mentions the Amalekites. But listen to what he prays. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace, peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. This is who Amalek is. This is who the uh, Amalekites are. They're a wicked people who've snuck up on and, and fought and attacked Israel and even Israel's most vulnerable. Second question, just for our context, who is Joshua? This is the first mention of Joshua in the book of Exodus. His name aptly means the Lord is salvation. So the name Joshua means the Lord is salvation. He's Moses' assistant. We'll see that more clearly later in our study. And he's one of the few who remain faithful in the wilderness such that when they get to the edge of the promised land, most of Israel doesn't get to go over because of their unfaithfulness. Joshua actually gets to succeed Moses and lead Israel into the promised land because of his faithfulness. And in our text for today, he's going to be the one who picks up the sword and leads the army in this war. 
while Moses, Aaron, and Hur head up to the top of the hill with the staff of God, which throughout Exodus has been a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness and power over all false gods, over all of God's enemies, all of the, all the enemies of God's people. And so that leads to a third question before we jump in just for context. Who are our enemies? So I don't have time to get into all of the differences between the Old Testament and how we think about enemies and how God has revealed redemptive history throughout time and the New. But what I do want to point out very clearly is the New Testament teaches that God no longer brings his just judgment upon his enemies through his people in the same way. But we do have enemies. But, but we see there's a difference in, in a way that God is advancing his kingdom. What did he tell Peter when Peter cuts off the, the man's ear just before Jesus dies? Peter, put your sword away. That's, that's not how we're bringing forth the wrath and justice. Of, the wrath and justice of God is still coming. It's just not in that manner. That's why the Apostle Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So we don't, we don't, like, we don't hear this text and say, great, let's, like, everybody get a gun, get some swords, get some knives, it's time to go to war. Why? Well, because the New Testament tells us fundamentally God is doing something different in how he's bringing forth and executing justice and bringing his wrath and judgment and how he's delivering that through his people. But you do need to understand we do fight. Paul says we must fight the good fight of the faith against three main enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you do have enemies, spiritual enemies who want to bring forth your spiritual demise. The world underneath the temporary reign and rule of Satan is against you. Satan himself hates you and hates God and hates his kingdom. And your own sinful flesh likes partnering up with Satan and this broken world to give you that which dishonors God and will destroy you and hurts others. So there are real enemies. There is a real fight. But the way we fight these enemies is by faith, with the word of God, through prayer, through truth, through salvation, through righteousness, and through gospel proclamation. Even as Paul shows us in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20, when he talks about this great fight that we have. And we do so by hearing, by believing, by obeying and bringing the word to one another. For Satan hates us to take the promises of, of God to one another for this battle and this fight. I got an email last night, last minute, that I thought, just, I've, I have, Lord, in your providence, your people need to hear this this morning. Speaking on spiritual warfare and the battles you are in even this morning, an author says, he, speaking of Satan, does not present his lies and deceptions in any truthful manner. He makes sin look alluring when, in fact, it's a soul-rotting poison. He tricks men into thinking they can steal a pleasure and never pay the debt. He appears as an angel of light. He disguises error as truth and makes it sound like truth, look like truth, feel like truth. He hides the darkness and deceives people into thinking they're walking in light when they're walking in complete spiritual darkness. He is amazingly effective at making lies believable, sin desirable, temptation unavoidable, and error irresistible. He is so effective that the only hope we have of being able to spot his lies is to be intimately familiar with the truth. We must be so well-versed in the truth, so faithful to the truth, and such a doer of truth that he will not be able to deceive us with his lies. Apart from the word of God, we are sitting ducks. And so we turn to four lessons from the word of God about how to receive grace for our battles. Lesson number one, victory belongs to God. Victory belongs to God. Look again at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now I want you to picture the scene for just a minute. Swords are clanking in violent battle. Blood is being shed. Violence is happening. 
Moses, Aaron, and Hur are up on the mountain watching the battle, likely praying for victory. Joshua and his army are defending the defenseless. They're fighting and protecting those who've been attacked. The war is happening with the wicked attacks of the Amalekites. And then Moses, Aaron, and Hur begin to realize, Moses, when your hands are lifted up to the Lord in prayer with the staff of God, we're prevailing over the enemies. But when your hands go down, the enemies are prevailing over us. Now, scholars love to debate what's going on with, here with Moses and his hands and whether or not he's praying and, and kind of what's going on with the staff. <laughs> I think the meaning is relatively simple, even if some of the details of what's happening isn't simple. So just to be clear, the staff isn't some magic wand from Harry Potter. <laughs> All right. So we're not talking about some kind of magic trick that's happening with this wand. And so there's like, again, don't, it's not magic. At the same time, we, the text doesn't tell us clearly that Moses is praying, though we assume he's praying. He's likely praying. Raise, raising hands is a common posture of prayer in the Old Testament. Even in the book of Exodus, if you think back to Exodus chapter 9, verse 29, when there's uh, the, the, the plague of the, the hail on the Egyptians, we read in verse 29, Moses said to Pharaoh, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. Or the psalmist in Psalm 63, 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. But again, I think, it's, I think it's relatively simple. Think about the big picture. Yahweh chose Moses. His life was preserved, though Pharaoh tried to kill him as an infant. God has regularly given Israel victory through Moses using this staff, which is a sign of, uh, and symbol of God's covenant faithfulness and presence with his people, demonstrating I'm the one doing this. So I can take this staff and I can turn the Nile into blood. I can take this staff, I can part the Red Seas, I can take this staff and close the Red Seas back on your enemies. He's demonstrating, I am with you, and this, this is a symbol of my power and presence and my covenant faithfulness to my people. And so when Moses raises his hands, he's showing and demonstrating we are dependent on Yahweh for victory. We can't win this battle. Yahweh must win this battle. And so when he lowered his hands and Israel fought in her own strength, Israel started losing. When he raised his hands in utter dependence upon Yahweh, Israel prevailed. Brothers and sisters, sometimes you take L's in your spiritual battles because you're relying on your own power, ability, and wisdom rather than the Lord's. Sometimes that's why you lose, because you're looking to the wrong person for power and strength necessary to get victory. You're looking to yourself, not to your Lord. Dependence upon the power and presence of God is key for victory. Now, that doesn't mean we don't fight. <laughs> It just means we fight while relying on God's presence and power and his provisions, his purposes, rather than our own. We fight with all that we have and all that we are, but we have faith not in our ability to win, but in his. We fight. It's kind of like we're a little lion cub, and we go out to battle with maybe a, a wild dog that's rabid, that's bigger than us. And you could fight relying on your own strength, or you could realize, no, the king of the jungle is right behind me and with me. And I can fight knowing he's the one fighting and he's going to handle this if he needs to handle it. We have to understand our strength and our trust and our faith and our hope is not in our ability to fight and win, but in Yahweh, in God. We fight because of God. And we fight with a faith in the fact that he's already won. So it's not just he's with us, but it's also he's already won. Israel's already out of bondage. He's already demonstrated the decisive victory. And so they're set free to fight these battles, but the war itself has already been won. They've been set free. And friends, that's true with us. 
If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, the victory's behind you and in front of you. Redemption from bondage at Calvary, the wedding feast of the Lamb in your future. So you've already been set free. You've already won. The victory is already his. And so you fight this battle knowing the war is decided. Christ has accomplished it. The war is won. The lion is with us. And so we fight today's battle in faith. Now, why did the Lord do this? Even think about why did he show them their unbelief and provide water from the rock, even as we studied last week? Because he wanted Moses to understand. It's not your strength and wisdom, ultimately, that will lead these people. The Lord is the great redeemer. He is the great deliverer of his people. Moses is an instrument in the redeemer's hands, just like the staff is an instrument in Moses' hands. Pastors, ministry leaders, parents, disciplers, we have much to learn here. We cannot lead and shepherd people apart from the power and presence of God available to us in the Holy Spirit as we study and bring forth his word. Beloved, all of us have much to learn here. We cannot win the battles that we face in our own strength. Victory belongs to God. Therefore, we must pray. Do you know what the early church did when she was super persecuted and boldly proclaiming the gospel and the bold proclamation of gospel increased the uh, persecution? You know what was happening when the spirit was moving in great power? You know what the early church was doing? Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together were shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You want to shake the world with the spirit of God? You want to win your battles? Then you must pray for the word of God to go forth. You must pray and depend on God and his power to advance his mission, his gospel, his word, and must do it through his people. You must depend upon God for victory belongs to him. So what does that mean for King's Cross members? That means our second Sunday service when we pray, there's nowhere better for you to be, more strategic for you to be than praying on a Sunday night at their second Sunday service. We're asking God to do something. We're admitting God. We're dependent on you. We can't do it. We can't win our own battles. We can't see the gospel flourish in Greensboro and to the ends of the earth. We can't send our sister to an unreached people in a dangerous place as she's going and assume that's going to go well without you. God, we're dependent on you. We need you. It means on Sunday mornings, every week at 9 a.m., people come here to pray for this service and for the ministries of this church. I love the story of Spurgeon regularly filling up, preaching a, a, a congregation of 10,000 people. And they said, Spurgeon, what's the secret? He took them downstairs, opened the basement door, and looked and said, a 1,000 people were down there praying. He said, my people pray for me. That's the secret. We must depend on God because the victory belongs to God. Philip Ryken says, both individually and corporately, the neglect of prayer means the loss of spiritual warfare. Even if we fight like Joshua, we'll not win the battle unless we pray like Moses. Victory belongs to God. Lesson number two, God's victories aren't hindered by our frailties. God's victories aren't hindered by our frailties. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So again, picture this. The battle rages on down below. Moses and the fellows are up on top of the hill watching this battle. And Moses at that moment, can you imagine the humiliation? 
like Joshua's arms not getting tired of swinging the sword, but Moses' arms are getting tired of holding them up to pray and holding the staff. And they're beginning to shake. If you've ever done too many push-ups or, or anything like that and your, your arms begin to burn out, that's where Moses is. Like I, like, I can't keep holding my hands up. And again, imagine the humiliation of this moment. I can't keep holding my hands up. They're dying down there. They keep holding the sword and I can't hold. Like, just imagine for Moses this moment. Fellas, I can't do it. I can't hold my hands up any longer. I need to sit down. My arms are burning. Moses, the great deliverer, cannot lead God's people alone. And do you see the irony? Moses' unique gifts and chosenness, if you will, are on display at the exact same time as his limits and weaknesses. It's his hands and his holding of the staff that uniquely is bringing forth victory for Israel. And yet, at the exact same time, he's too weak to even hold his hands up. Like, do you see the irony of this moment, the uniqueness of who Moses is, and yet the normal nature of who Moses is? Friends, God rarely uses great leaders in their uniqueness without also exposing their weakness. He rarely uses great leaders in their uniqueness, Moses, without exposing their weakness. That's back to our first point. Moses isn't ultimately the victor. God is. Yet God is choosing to work through Moses, and even when Moses is weak, God has placed Aaron and her to help him. Brothers and sisters, the same for you and I. Your victory often comes not through your uniqueness, but through your weakness. The Apostle Paul embraced this reality because he knew this points to God. God's is the victory. Paul knew this. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my speech were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but the power of God. So Paul understands, no, no, no. God is using the Apostle Paul uniquely. And Paul's like, yes, but he's always also going to use my weakness. And so let me just show you, lest you get it twisted in Corinth where you guys like worshiping celebrities, lest you think I'm one of them, I came to you in weakness. You saw all our mess-ups, but as I had all of these weaknesses, I was looking to the power of God that you wouldn't trust in me, but you would trust in him. And this is what we see with Moses. His weakness is on display, even as his uniqueness is on display. Also, we realize Moses' weakness points us to the fact that we need a better mediator, a better redeemer, a better prayer. One who, as the author of Hebrews described Jesus, our great high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, there's good news this morning. Your frailties aren't hindrances to God. They are actually gifts that keep you humble and reliant upon his presence and power so that he gets the glory and you get the joy. So the very weaknesses you're trying to hide from people, the very weaknesses you're trying to hide from God, they're not hindrances to him. He will use those to demonstrate he's the one doing it. The victory belongs to him and he's going to use you. And so even if your unique gifts or even through your weaknesses, you're not a hindrance to God. You need not be ashamed. You need not hide your weaknesses. You can bring them into the light with God and with those you are around. Again, the Apostle Paul helps us to see the link between our frailties and God's power. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 
Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's victories in the battles in your life are not hindered by your frailties. You don't have to hide them. You don't need to be ashamed of them. In fact, they are gifts to you that you might rely on him and even run to others for help, which leads us to our third lesson. God uses the whole squad, if you will. God uses the whole squad. Look again at verse 12, particularly the second half, and verse 13. Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. So again, look at just the different characters right here. Moses is praying and depending on Yahweh. Aaron and her are likely praying and holding up Moses' arms. Joshua is leading the army. And the whole army is full of people whose names we don't know, similar to the ones we just sang about. So look at the whole squad at work as God is delivering victory for his people. There's different gifts, different abilities, different moments that God is using to advance this victory even in this battle. Friends, your weaknesses are not only an opportunity for God to show off his power, they're also an opportunity for him to do so through someone else's strengths. Kingdom work is a team sport. When God works powerfully, he uses many. When he wants to do something mighty, more often than not, he does so through his people, not through a person. Our God is a God who uses a corporate people to do and advance all that he does in his kingdom. He's not all about individual celebrities. He's about advancing his gospel through his people. This is a part of him rigging our victories in such a way that it makes it obvious that God is the one who calls the victory, not us. God uses a whole squad of people whose boast is not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, friends, I want to give a pastoral warning right here on a concern I have about the church just at large, broadly. Not this church particularly, but just the conversation in the evangelical church, particularly in the West, on the danger of pragmatism. Here's what I worry, that often the church, we're begging and pleading that God would move in power. He would do something to bless us. And then he does something to bless us. And as soon as he does, we take our eyes off of him. We look at the thing he did. And then we try to figure out how to manipulate and control the thing and do it over and over again without his help. So then I think we think like good pragmatic Americans who are like, no, what, what works? Let's do that. Not realizing, no, God is the only one who can do this work. <laughs> He's the only one who's able to do this. He's the only one who can take a dead heart and give it life. He's the only one who can expose sin in such a way that doesn't push you away but draws you near. He's the only one who can pay the penalty for your sin, set you free from your sin, give you the Holy Spirit, and cause you to put your sin to death. We can't make that happen. We can't manufacture that. We can't manipulate it into being. We must depend on God to do this work. And so I get concerned. I get concerned when there are good things that churches begin to focus on, but then slowly take their eyes off of God. Often, it could be the preaching of the pastor, 
It could be the quality of the music. It could be the comfort of the building. It could be the hospitality of the people. It could be the excellence of the ministries. Or we could go on and on. These are good things. But if we take our eyes and dependence off of the Lord and value and valuing the whole squad that he intends to use, then we lose the only power that actually matters and actually can accomplish the work he intends to do. It's his provisions, his power. That's what protects us from thirst, from hunger, and even for our enemies. So be careful, even personally, you saying you trust in God while actually trusting in political parties or savings accounts or stock markets or investment properties or a commitment to hustle or your own physical health to accomplish only what God can accomplish through his people. May we trust and depend on him. And so I ask you the question, who's holding your hands up when you're too weak to? Whose hands are you holding up when theirs are too weak to stay up? You need the whole squad. You need the church. The church needs you. Join a church. Let your uniqueness and your weakness be used however God sees fit. Fourth and final lesson. Good leaders point God's people to God's victory. Good leaders point God's people to God's victory. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, I hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. First, I just want you to notice that Amalek and, and indeed all sinners take the L. So the Amalekites will continue to, to be a great enemy of Israel. Even King Saul will not finish the task and do what he's supposed to do. So that won't happen until 2 Samuel, Samuel under King David. But the Lord will eventually bring forth his final judgment. He's patient. He's long-suffering. But God in his wrath will wipe them out just like he said he would do. And, and as one uh, theologian said, the Amalekite story reminds us that while God is patient in bringing his wrathful judgment, he never forgets to mete it out. But friends, God is patient. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 11. But he desires that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. But his wrath will fall on all of his enemies just like it did the Amalekites. But friends, there's a greater deliverer whose hands were held up so that his people might have victory. But unlike Moses, whose hands were held up by two friends, this great deliverer of the Lord Jesus' hands were held up by two nails. In between two enemies, so that he could suffer and die in a place of sinners to set them free, so that rescue might get them out. So he doesn't get to have his friends holding up his arm when he's weak. No, he's nailed to a cross and crucified for sinners in order to set us free from sin, Satan, and death. This is what our great deliverer has done to set us free finally and decisively. And he resurrected from the dead. He ascended to the Father's right hand. He's the Son of God, the Savior of the universe, is praying for us right now. Like, we can literally think about this for like 24 hours straight and not even get close to how incredible that is. The Son of God is praying for you right now. Could you imagine if he was like in that room over there and you could hear him praying for you? It's just as true as if that was happening. He's interceding. He's conquered sin, Satan, and death. He's set you free. He's praying and interceding for you. Even now, non-Christian friends, the wrath of God is coming. There is a reason why the Scripture says today is the day of salvation. You don't know that tomorrow is promised. And so we love you and we plead with you and we cry out to you. Even we quote from 2 Corinthians sincerely in our hearts. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is your only hope to flee from the wrath to come. Look to Christ. He suffered and died for you so that you don't have to. He rose from the grave to show you he's sufficient to save sinners like you and sinners like me. And then notice what Moses says about Yahweh. The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi or, or Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. Israel prevailed over the Amalekites. Moses builds an altar for worship and remembrance of Yahweh's victory yet again for his people. And then he names this altar. The Lord is my banner. Now what was a banner? So a banner, I'm going to read, uh, read from one scholar. says, a banner is a military standard. A piece of cloth bearing an army insignia and raised on a pole. Soldiers always look to their banner. It establishes their identity. It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it also keeps, helps them keep their bearings and gives them courage and hope. As long as their banner is still flying, they know the battle is not lost. So Moses says, no, no, no. Yahweh is our banner. And so when we're fighting our battles and we're struggling, wondering what's going to happen, we look and say, no, no, Yahweh is on our side. <laughs> Yahweh is the one who's set Israel free and gave them this new life. Yahweh's the one who's conquered Egypt and all those false gods, conquered Pharaoh, the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. Yahweh's the one who's set them free. Yahweh's the one who's fighting their battles. Yahweh's our banner. This is our identity. This is our security. But for the Christian, what do we see from all of this? Well, the Calvary is our banner. The cross of Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection, that's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I've resolved to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our banner. That's what we have. And we look and say, no, the cross defines me. The cross defines me. He who knew no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. If you're in Christ, you want to know who you are this morning, no matter what your battle is, you're the righteousness of God. Why? Because God looked on Calvary's cross and said, he, your sin was guilty and imputed to him. That holy exchange happened. That's your banner. That defines who you are. Nothing else defines you except for the cross of Christ. This victory gives us a stability no matter what battles we're going through. Because we understand, again, you guys know I love sports, I love football. It's a common thing for football teams to talk about, look, we're not thinking about the whole season, we just want to go 1-0. We're always thinking about 1-0. We just got to win this week. All we're thinking about is this battle right in front of us. We just want to go 1-0. and And so it kind of keeps the focus. But because we have Calvary as the banner, well, 1-0 and is behind us. Like, it's already in the rafters. <laughs> that banner is always, already hanging. Victory has been won by Christ. And so 1-0 and is behind us. 1-0 and is in front of us. We've got a battle right now, but we, we know Christ has already won the war. We know in front of us we're going to glory. So we know this battle will turn out however he wants it to turn out. One of those behind us, one of those in front of us. He's our banner. He defines us. He defines uh, our existence, our identity, who we are, our purpose, our person, and therefore he's with us and we have confidence. One of those behind us, one of those is in front of us. And so we sing the drum I've been banging the whole sermon. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. <laughs> Victory belongs to Jesus. Jesus and his cross are our banner. Brothers and sisters, do you believe he will take care of you, that he's with you, that he'll provide you, he'll meet all of your needs, he'll protect you from your own sin and problems, he'll protect you even from all of your enemies? Do you realize that as you fight your battles today, you do so under the victorious banner of Calvary? Do you want to be a great leader in God's kingdom? 
I'll tell people Jesus won the war while you depend on him to win your battles. I conclude with this thought. Uh, the 33rd president of the United States, Truman, said uh, famously, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you do not care who gets the credit. And, and as an American, I love that statement, and I amen it. But I think Exodus 17 has taught us something better this morning. It's amazing what we can accomplish when Yahweh's the one accomplishing it. And he gets the credit. We get the victory. We press on. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for King Jesus.